Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 2. How do you go about searching for a church? Please don't be searching for a church right now. That would discourage me. And when Lance got back, he'd be like, where'd everybody go? Maybe you're moving into a new area or a family member is moving into a new area and you need to find a church. How do you go about that search? For many of us, the first step is to get a recommendation from a trusted source. Maybe we go to someone who lives in that town or maybe someone we work with and we ask about churches in that town. Or maybe it's a reliable source like a trusted seminary or church denomination. I know many people find our church through our connection with the Master's University, Master's Seminary, Grace to You. I've talked to many of you who found us through Nine Marks or Founders Ministry or even the EFCA. But once you have a few churches to research, then we go, about, we go to their website and begin the investigation. We've all done it, I believe. And we go to the website, and on the top of the page, there's that About button, and we click that icon, and we find out about the church's mission. Uh, What are they about? What do they seek to accomplish? What's their statement of faith? What are their core theological convictions? Hopefully, we can find a little bit of a deeper one, uh, what we teach documents, so we can better understand those other kind of controversial issues. Where do they take a stand on issues of election, and uh, what do they talk about by way of uh, creation and things of that nature? As we continue the search, we then look for where is the leadership tab. We want to find out who their leaders are. Where did their leaders get their training? Who are the men that are leading the congregation that we will be attending How long have they been here? What are their passions? After looking at who is there, who's leading, we click onto the ministries tab and see, okay, we know what your ministry uh, objectives are. How do you practically accomplish those? What programs do you have? How are you going to work out this ministry? How are you going to be the salt and the light in your community? Some of us might even go to the history tab. We want to get a little sense of where they've come from. When was the church planted? How has God guided them over the years? Who former pastors are that have served faithfully in that ministry? And then finally, and for me the most important, is the sermon tab. I want to hear how they handle the word. I want to hear how they preach to ensure that if I go there, that the word will be handled accurately and will be presented in such a way that I'll be able to grasp it, I'll be able to understand, I'll be able to understand the intended, the intended meaning of the text by the original author. It's only after all of that then I will attend for the first time. Well, as we turn our attention to our passage today, We're going to find a church that on the surface seemed to have everything together. You and I would be going to that church. If they had a website in 95 AD, we would get on there, we'd look up Church of Ephesus, and we would do the About tab, and we would find out about where they, what they teach, we'd find about their ministries, we'd find about their leaders, and we would be excited to go to this church. Our podcast would be filled with their sermons. And when we think about who taught there, oh my goodness, we would be listening to sermons all the time and they would be amazing. But the head of the church himself, Jesus Christ, was not pleased 
with this church and wrote this message to the leader of this church for the church to change its ways. You look great on the outside, but there is something wrong on the inside. And as great as you look on the outside, if you don't change what's on the inside, your effectiveness is done. It's a rather frightening passage, actually. To see a church that has all the characteristics of a healthy church, but when Jesus looks at it, he says that it is teetering on losing its effectiveness. It's teetering on being useless. And he threatens to take away their lampstand. We find ourselves in the great prophetic book of Revelation. I'm not going to answer all the Revelation prophecy questions, so if you were hoping for that, I'm going to disappoint you. We're going to take a look at the verses prior to this discussion of understanding end times and eternity. But before he got to that chapter 4 and on about the end times and uh, eternity, Jesus wanted to communicate some very important facts to seven actual churches. The seven churches described in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are seven literal churches that ministered in Western Asia Minor at the time that John was writing this book of Revelation. He writes to these seven churches before he gets to the prophetic portion of chapter 4 because he wants to make people ready for that return. He wants his churches to be healthy so that they can minister before the Lord returns. He wanted them to repent so that they were ready for his return. And the first church in this list of seven that Christ addresses is the church that we're all familiar with, and that is the church of Ephesus. The New Testament has much to say about this church, as much of the history of Paul revolves around this church, and many of the epistles that we love in our Bibles are written and directed to this church specifically. And they are receiving these epistles as well. This passage is written by Christ himself, and it is a message to these believers If you look at verse 1, Jesus directs this letter, as we can see, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, this angel or messenger, depending on your translation, is not a literal angel, but a human representative of the church, an elder or a pastor who could take this message to his flock. There are other passages in the book that use this word angel or messenger, and they are describing very clearly a human individual. But notice verse 1 also, how Christ describes himself. Christ describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What Christ here is highlighting about himself is this intimacy and knowledge that he has of those seven churches. I am the head of the church. I am the one who is building up the church, and I am the one who has you in my hand. I am the one who is walking around you. I know what is going on in your community, in your membership, and what is going on in the heart of each one of you. 
Because I am the one holding you. I am the one walking among you. He is actively and intimately involved in these churches and he knows them. He knows the outward workings of the church and he knows the inward workings of their heart. So as we study this passage this morning, I want us to see what Jesus values in a church. What he commends for us at Cross and Crown Church and for the individuals that make up cross and crown church. But I also want us to see what can easily be forgotten that quickly invalidates it all. What Jesus identifies as essential to be a church or an individual that serves him effectively so that we can pursue being that church. We can pursue being that type of individual that is successful in in serving Jesus Christ here in Colorado Springs here in our family, here at our places of employment, here amongst our friends. This letter provides for us three essential lessons from Christ about being a healthy church and one that serves him effectively. So let's read the passage before us, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake And have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of this place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for these types of ears, ears that listen, hearts that are sensitive, eyes that are able to look at where we truly are. Lord, we want to be that church. We want to be that individual who you use to be a light in the midst of the darkness, to be salt of this world. We want to be a part of evangelism. We want to be a part of the discipleship of your children. And yet, Lord, may we focus in not just in what we do, which are commendable, but, Lord, on the heart And where our attitude might be, which is, in this passage, confronted. Lord, help us to be sensitive to your spirit, sensitive to your word. And may this church be an example for us as we seek to glorify you as a church and as individuals here in Colorado Springs. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Take a look at verse 5. Jesus here threatens to remove the lampstand of this church. 
He was not threatening to remove their salvation, for we know that it is impossible because of the faithfulness of his promise that once we call out for salvation and Christ forgives us, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life and we are placed in his hand just as these churches are and no one can pluck us out of his hand. However, what Jesus is threatening is to remove our effectiveness. He is threatening to remove their effectiveness as a church or to remove the church altogether. You aren't doing it right, and so either you're not going to be productive in your pursuits or I'm just going to remove the church. Christ is the head of the church, and he will build his church, and the gates of Hades may not prevail against it. The church will last until Christ comes, but individual churches will come and go. Local churches will be faithful and they'll be unfaithful. The Lord will use them or he will stop using them. The church is described as the light of the world and the body of Christ. And it is our responsibility to shine that light before men as a representative for God and to be his hands and feet here on earth. But for us to fulfill that responsibility, we need to accomplish some Christ-ordained requirements. For you to be successful, this is what it must look like. And so we must, so to accomplish this, we must fulfill the deeds that he commends in this passage, and we need to identify the devotion that he confronts in this passage and in our hearts so that we can follow the direction back that he conveys. And those are my three points to our message. The first is the deeds that Christ commends. The church of Ephesus was a church that you and I would go to, a church you and I would select, a church that you and I would recommend because of their website. We would love it. They were doing the deeds that Christ was pleased with. In verses 2, 3, and 6, he, Christ, is commending them. He is honoring them. He is lifting up their deeds as an example of what is good and what is right and what we should be a part of. The Greek word deeds in verse 2 refers to deeds that are good, good works. He is commending them. And he describes these deeds in three ways. There are three particular things that the church of Ephesus was doing. Number one, they were a working church or a serving church. Jesus began by commending them for their toil. I know your deeds and your toil. Toil is the activity of labor to the point of exhaustion. The word comes from the same Greek word uh, translated to give up, and it speaks of sacrificial effort. It's work at a cost, work that is hard, work that requires sweat and tears and a little bit of blood. Paul made it clear in many different passages dealing with ministry that it was hard work. Good ministry is hard ministry. Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, Pastor Lance looked at it a couple of weeks ago, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose, so that's the goal, for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power that mightily works within us. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, a letter that they had received, a letter that they had in their, in their church. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The Ephesian church was a working church. They were engaged in ministry. They sacrificed their time and their resources for the furtherance of the gospel, for the growth of the members of the church. They were a serving church. We don't know the programs that they had. Did they have an Ephesian version of Awana? I'm not sure. But if this church was being described by the people of the day, they would say it was an active church and the membership participated. A healthy church is an active church. It is one that does not just come to the service to receive and receive and receive. No, it comes together to be taught, to be equipped, so that it can go and it can evangelize. It can go and it can disciple. It can go and it can minister to the needs of the flock to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Jesus saw their deeds and was commending them on their toil. But secondly, this church in Ephesus was a persevering church. After acknowledging their toil... Jesus positively reflected on their perseverance. Perseverance is a a patience with respect to our circumstances. It's not simply passively bearing something, but it has the idea of triumphal fortitude over the difficulty, through the difficulty. It is to stay with a work and complete that work over a long amount of time regardless of the challenges in its path. It is to continue without quitting. And in verse 3, it states that they did not grow weary. They labored to the point of weariness, but weariness never so overwhelmed them that they stopped. We're all going to face weariness. We're all going to be tired in ministry, but they didn't allow that tiredness to say, time out, I need to take an extended break of the rest of my Christian life. The letter of the church of Ephesus was written about 40 years after, uh, or after this church was founded. They were a working church for 40 years. For 40 years, it wasn't easy in this town. They worked in the context of a very unfriendly government. This was not a pro-religion uh, government. There was false doctrine entering the church. We see that in verse 6 and in verse 2. There were false teachers. There were multiple leadership changes. The city of Ephesus was the home of the temple of Diana where prostitution was considered a form of worship and sexual sin was rampant. It was outside the church. It was inside the church. This temple was a safe haven for criminals. This was a sanctuary city. This is not an easy city in the Bible Belt. No, this is in the midst of the dirt of the deeds of the flesh of Galatians chapter 5. Yet, they stayed their course. They evangelized. They discipled. They cared for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. They seek to live their lives as a testimony of of the Christ that they 
proclaimed. A healthy church is an active church, regardless of how easy it is or how difficult it is to accomplish that work. It works through the difficult times. It pushes through hardships and challenging times. And it patiently endures year after year, decade after decade, for the long haul. Thirdly, it was a teaching church. It was a doctrinally sound church. After acknowledging their toil and their perseverance, Jesus commends them on their knowledge of the truth. Verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who themselves are apostles. They are not, and you found them to be false. This Ephesian church was a well-taught church, and that truth they held up. They believed it. They lived their lives based on it. They evaluated what was right and wrong according to it. In a letter to the Ephesian church written in 110 AD, years after this letter was penned, Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, testified to the church's doctrinal soundness years after, 15 to 20 years after. He said, Indeed, Onesimus himself gives great praise to your order in God, for you all live according to the truth, and no heresy dwells among you. Nay, you do not even listen to any unless he speak concerning Jesus Christ in truth. I have learned, however, that some from elsewhere have stayed with you who have evil doctrine, but you did not suffer them to sow it among you, and stopped your ears so that you might not receive what they sow. That's 15 to 20 years later. This is a well-taught, doctrinally sound church. Just a little Ephesian church history for you. You click on the history tab and drops down. What's the history of this church? It is a wealth of spiritual teaching. The Apostle Paul planted this church during his second missionary journey. He left Priscilla and Aquila there to teach and shepherd. Apollos had a ministry there for some time. On Paul's third missionary journey, Paul returned to the city and lived there for three years, serving among the elders and teaching. Later, Timothy was placed in leadership of this church under Paul's direction. After Timothy's stay, it appears that the Apostle John began to minister in this church until his exile in Patmos, where he received this vision and wrote this letter. This town was the possible recipient of as many as eight of the New Testament letters. Eight of the New Testament letters. The Gospel of John, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Revelation, and it was probably where Paul was when he wrote 1st Corinthians. I don't know about you, but when I am working on something, I tend to talk to people about what I'm working on, so they probably got a little bit of 1st Corinthians during their time. It was a well-taught church, and it manifested itself in their discernment between true and false teaching. They were able to test those who called themselves apostles. And in verse 6, it speaks of the hate that this church had for this sect that had grown in their midst. We're not sure the exact group 
the nature of the group, but it's a bit, it's a bit of a mystery, but it appears that uh, this group mentioned in verse 6 taught a form of perverted grace in which sin was not recognized and holiness was not pursued. And you could believe in Christ and live exactly like every other Ephesian in your town. You could enjoy the sin of the temple of Diana. You could defraud. You could steal. Your life could be a wreck. But Jesus saves. Whatever their exact issues were, we see that both the Ephesian church and Jesus himself hated their deeds as well. So so these Ephesians so understood the Scriptures, and the Scriptures are Christ's words, that they hated what Jesus hated because they knew who Jesus was and they knew what Jesus taught. They were so familiar with the truth. They so knew his heart. These people were able to pick out false teaching and sinful activity and identify it for what it was, an abomination to the Lord. And as a result of the equipping of the saints by these pastors and teachers and the mutual membership ministry of this church, Ephesians 4.14 says that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And the reason they were growing out of their childlikeness was because they knew the truth and they compared everything they heard and saw by that truth. The Word taught them, the Word rebuked them, the Word corrected them, and the Word trained them in righteousness. A healthy church is a doctrinally sound church. It is a well-taught church that understands who God is what he's about, what he loves, what he hates, what he commands. And, it is a, and they are able to apply that in their life so that the principle becomes practical in their everyday lives. In looking at this church, the deeds that are commended by Christ, it is good to ask, are they true of us and are they true of me? Are we serving through the difficulty over a long period of time? Are we people of the book? Are we evangelizing? Are we discipling? Are we caring for the widows and orphans? Apparently, this church was. And that's something that we need to look at, learn from, and seek to apply in our own life. But not only does the Lord teach us the deeds that he commends, But he also teaches us the devotion that he confronts. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Verse 4 quickly and abruptly changes the tone of this letter. Right? Hey, I commend you, I commend you, I commend you. Boom, verse 4. The people... We're being commended, and there is approval on their deeds, but Christ moves to confrontation in this verse. You see, the people had come out of paganism. They were Ephesians. 
They, they were amongst the people. They, they worshipped as the Ephesians worshipped. They lived as the Ephesians lived, but they were saved. These were Christians, not because of custom, not because of family obligation, not out of fashion, but because of a love for Christ and his power to save. They were confronted in their sin. They recognized their sin. They recognized God's love and the gift of this Lamb of God that would take away the sins of man. And this first love speaks of the fervent, chaste, and pure love of the newly wedded bride. It was like the love of Mary of Bethany that thought of nothing, not the cost of the perfume. She just was with Christ and she poured it on him because of her love for Jesus. Jesus was not saying that they lost their salvation. He was merely pointing out that they had forgotten the motive behind their work. They had forgotten why they persevered, what was behind the need to protect sound doctrine. They lost their love for Christ. They left their love of Christ. Their trouble was not that they weren't doing the work of the ministry, for they were hard workers. It wasn't their doctrine, for they demonstrated great theological discernment. They were like Martha, distracted by much serving, The Ephesians, it seems, had forgotten the one thing needful, as it says in that passage. They stopped sitting at the foot of Jesus, worshiping him, loving him, being devoted to him. The problem they faced was their devotion to the Lord. God desires relationship with humanity. Does that amaze you? The creator of the universe wants a relationship with us. We're creations and he wants a relationship with us. Then you take Genesis 3. We are sinful creation and he still wants a relationship with us. God created humanity for his pleasure. And that pleasure isn't just to watch as you would if you had like a, I don't know, an ant farm and you're watching them go through and go, oh, that's pretty cool how they do that, how they dig those holes. No, he wants a relationship with the ants. Amazing. Not only did he create us for that relationship, but God has constantly sought us out to restore that relationship. Over and over and over again, the sinner departs and Christ follows. He went after Adam and Eve in chapter 3. He went after sinning Israel. He loved us even when we were his enemies. And this relationship is to be reciprocal. We are to reciprocate that relationship. We're to pursue that relationship. We're to make that relationship the priority of our lives. Yet, as is often the case, we fall in love with the church and its programs and we lose sight of the person behind the church. We we love and hold up and even worship the love letter and we ignore the person who wrote it. Pastor MacArthur said that the church had lost their passion and fervor for Christ and had become cold, mechanical orthodoxy. Think about your own life. 
How much of this is routine? How much of this is tradition? How much of this is habit? The Ephesians would wake up on Sunday morning. They would get their kids ready for church and go into the 95 minivan. They would get to church. They would sing their songs. They would hear their sermons. They would toil in ministry in the different programs without much thought of Christ and their love for him. It had become what they had done. Their church was only 40 years old, and yet it was that quick for them. And we can be like this church as well. We can go about our ministries. We can preach and teach sound biblical doctrine. We can sacrifice our time and our energy and our talents and our finances every week and and month at church. And we can do it for a long amount of time in the midst of adverse circumstances. But But we do it without a single thought of Christ. Our devotion has has become cold. Early on in a new relationship, you guys remember that? For some of you, it was years ago. You have strong feelings. You can't stop thinking about the other person. You always want to be together. Your phone is blowing up with texts. So kids, we didn't text. We wrote little notes to one another or we called each other. You wanted to talk all the time. You wanted to do everything together. Do whatever it takes to be together. You do whatever it takes to make your beloved happy. You are on a high from which you never want to come down. But oftentimes, as the relationship continues over the years, this relationship become quite routine. Life happens, the fire that consumed the romance becomes a chill that freezes the relationship. (laughs) That's what happened here in Ephesus. They they forsook their devotion to Christ. All they they had left was dead orthodoxy, headless morality, empty religion. And it can happen to you, and it can happen to me. Has it happened to you? Because it sure has happened to me to me. If there was a time when you loved Jesus more than you do now, you are on that path that the Ephesians found themselves in. And Jesus wanted the Ephesians to understand that their labor, that their perseverance, and their conviction being good was useless without the love, passion, and fervor for Jesus. And the Lack of one thing endangered the good of the other things. The third lesson that we find in this letter is the direction back that he conveys. This is so God. This is so Jesus. Not only does he confront the church, but he also gives them the correction that they needed. It is so merciful, so gracious. When someone does you wrong, you go, well, fine then. Get out of my face. I don't need you. You hurt me. You left me. You, this, this amazing, intense relationship that we once shared, you have thought and gone to other things. Be gone. But that's, that's not Jesus. 
He presents to them the process to rekindle the flame of once that burnt so brightly. And he answers the question, what can be done about this lost love? And we see that in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand. Jesus presents three acts, three steps that we can take to restore that love. He says to remember, he says to repent, and he says to return. Number one, remember. Jesus begins by saying, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Jesus pointed out to these believers that one's memory is so important in rekindling this flame. If we translate the grammar literally, it would be keep remembering. Keep remembering. Remember the love and the devotion that you had early on in your faith because of that newfound understanding of who Christ was and what Christ did for you. Again, as we mentioned before, this was a well-taught congregation. They had the copy of the letter to the Ephesian church. They understood the first seven verses of chapter 2. They understood their formal spiritual condition. They had simply lost sight of it. They had lost sight of all that Christ had done for them, what he was doing for them, and what he promised he would do for them in the future. They had lost sight of the blessing and the goodness of God. They had lost sight of the passion and excitement that the new believer has when he realizes that he is free from guilt. When he's been adopted into this family where where God looks upon him and is pleased with him because of the righteousness that is found in Christ. Jesus said, remember, remember. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103. We renew our spiritual hunger for the Lord, our appetite for the Lord, by bringing back to mind the heights from which we have fallen. David here is is writing about the need to praise the Lord, the need to to worship the Lord, the need to love the Lord. And he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's as if he is trying to shake himself awake because he senses the dullness in his heart. Well, what does he go to? And forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your your youth is renewed like the eagles. Forget not all his benefits. What he's saying is remember. He is foreshadowing the words that are written here in this text. Remember. Remember how it was. Remember how precious Christ was to you when you came first to know him. Remember. Folks, we're about to celebrate the Lord's table, and that's the point. 
The point is, on a regular basis, we are reminding ourselves of sin's wickedness. We're reminding ourselves of our need for salvation. We are reminding ourselves of God's love and grace and mercy. We are reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us on the cross so that we could be saved. And it is growing and stoking that fire for love for him. Step one, remember. Step two, repent. The second step that Jesus presented to this church was to repent. Once they had remembered all that God had done for them and from where they had fallen, Jesus commanded them to repent of the sins that had caused them to become dull. What is repentance? It's changing of the mind. It has the idea of making a U-turn in your life. It is to acknowledge your way as being wrong and God's way as being right and turning from your way to God's way. To repent simply is to come back to God. And this is what Jesus commands. Come back. This repentance is a confession of cold indifference, a lack of love, or turning to other things. In this case, the mindset is that of neglecting an intimate, personal, and intense love for Jesus himself. Confessing that church has become something other than my worship and love and service for you. It's become how I can be a moral person. It's become how I can have a good marriage. It's become how I can raise my children. It's become how I can find friends. It even becomes how I can use my gifts. All of those things are good. But the primary reason we do what we do here is for that relationship with him. It's a mindset of neglecting an intimate, personal, and intense love for Jesus himself. It's, it's, it's repenting of this devotion that has turned to other things. Other things have stolen that passion. We are passionate about so many other things. My son, the other day, we were at a a concert, and uh, he confronted his dad because I was not engaged in the worship the way he engages in worship. And as he was talking to me about it, he's like, but the words of the songs, Dad, don't don't they move you? And I go, yeah, internally. <laughs> and then, which was fine. We all worship differently. But then I began to, when he was gone, I began to think about what moves me externally. And I have a lot of passions. You guys want to go get a burger? I can get passionate about in and out and I can worship. And I began to compare the two. I'm like, what is going on there? There is something that has gained my affection that I am passionate about, that is more than the person and work of Jesus Christ. This repentance also includes, also includes unconfessed sin in our lives. We, 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 we noticed that two weeks ago in 1 John, where it says, if you fellowship with God and yet remain in sin, the truth is not in you. That there is something going on that is contra to who God is, and so repent of that if this relationship is to grow. We must repent. Thirdly, 
We must return. We must repeat. Jesus commanded the the believers to return to or repeat their first works. He was simply saying, start doing those works which characterized your church at its earliest stage of existence. Do it at once. Repeat. Return. We don't have time, but if you go back to Acts 19 and you reread their story and ask what their first love was, you would have to answer that it was none other than the intense, all-consuming love of the Lord Jesus for having saved them from their sin. A love so powerful it began the driving force in all that they did. A love so powerful it moved them to give up everything else all of what they had viewed as important in the years previous. The deeds that the Ephesians did at first involved forsaking everything else and devoting themselves strictly to the exclusivity of Jesus. In radical love, they threw off everything else they trusted in, everything else they depended on, and they abandoned themselves to their wonderful Savior and to Him alone. God's not interested in our good works if they are not done for his glory and in response to his love for us. We are to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices in Romans chapter 12. Why? As a sacrifice, as worship. We are to live in response to his love for us and out of love for him. Perhaps you remember how you first came to understand and appreciate the forgiveness of Jesus in your life. You couldn't get enough of him. You left the things that you had trusted in and followed after, and you trusted in him and followed after him. You wanted to be in the word, and you wanted to tell people about the word. You longed to read about him in the Bible. You longed to hear from him in the Bible. You were eager to gather together with other believers to talk about him, to worship him, to sing praises in the deepest and most heartfelt way of saying thanks. Well, it has never been his desire that any of that love fade away. His desire for that love is to continue and to grow and to deepen and to strengthen. His desire for that enthusiasm for him to dominate our lives more and more. His desire is that we go back and do what we did before. Look at verse 7 as we close. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This phrase is biblically asking, are you listening? Do you have a submissive heart and a willing mind? After studying the text instead of us, in front of us, instead of saying, yeah, that Ephesian church, woo, they blew it. We should be asking, Lord, have the, the coals of my heart's love for you grown cold? Just think of it. It is possible to serve and sacrifice and suffer for my name's sake, as it says beginning of this passage, and yet not really love Jesus. 
The believers were so busy maintaining their separation that they were neglecting their adoration. Labor is no substitute for love. Neither is purity a substitute for passion. The church must have both if we are to please him. As a local church, is cross and crown about Jesus? And as individuals that comprise cross and crown, are we about loving Jesus, glorifying Jesus, spending time with Jesus, being Jesus' hands and feet? If not, we must remember. If not, we must repent. If not, we must return. Let's pray. Father, this passage is a, it's a declaration of my own soul. You are to be the center. You are worthy of that love. You are worthy of that praise. Lord, may the truths of the gospel be so a part of my thinking and our thinking. May we sing it each and every week. May we preach it every week so that we as a congregation, we as individuals would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are worthy of our love. Thank you for the graciousness and the kindness and the mercy to tell us how to to rekindle that the Spirit to help us love you the way we should. Thank you for the community of believers that you've brought to this church that help us as we pursue that. And we pray that we would grow in that love. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.